This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Coming to you live from Phoenix, Arizona, and acquire or be acquired. Uh, and for those of you who have been to AOBA with me, your host, Jason Hendricks, I spend most of my time at the fire pit. And so, surprise, surprise, I am recording with good friends Alex Johnson and Mary Winooski at a fire pit. And one of the exciting things is this is the first acquire or be acquired for both Mary and Alex. So let's start with Mary, kick us off. What do you think of your first AOBA? What's your first impression? I really feel like fish out of water here. Um, and that's because I'm used to more of an informal scene. And this is very formal. This is like high tea society. This is like <laughs> country club society. I don't golf, but if I did, I feel like I'd make a bunch of friends. Yeah, the not golfing is a huge, huge gap in your uh, your community banking <laughs> resume, I feel like. It's uh, it's interesting. It's It's much more formal than a lot of the fintech events that I've been to. Uh, it's very popular. There's quite a few people here. I think they are uh, hitting record attendance at least for the last couple of years. And uh, it does, there generally seems to be a very sort of cheerful, everyone's very happy with sort of the state of community banking kind of vibe. I'm a little surprised by that because it, there is absolutely this undeniable, almost glee right now. Yes. And you can see where that would come in because with rates going up, their you know, ability to lend at higher rates has gone up, but they haven't fully digested that their cost of funds is also going to go up. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. There's a, an element of um, just not bumming themselves out maybe yet because there is, I think, rain that's coming and we know that deposit betas are going to go up. And I think, Mary, you and I were talking about the fact that everyone is already starting to think about where they're going to get their deposits. But yeah. it almost feels like it's a little too late if you're having that conversation right now because soon there's going to be way more competition for deposits and it's not going to be quite so cheerful. Well, and the other thing they seem to be very cheerful about is the reckoning that fintech has been taking. So I, I've been hearing some applause when it's like, Oh, fintechs were coming for us, but they're not really getting us. So, but so that the I, giant sigh of relief. They're like, "Ha! Yes, it they, is a they giant sigh of relief. Come. We were right. Yeah, like fintech is not uh, fintech is not as bad of a threat as we thought it was. We were never that worried about it anyway. Kind of somewhat going back to business as usual, which is a scary concept. Yeah, it is a scary concept. Well, and it's interesting on the talk of deposits three years ago, two years ago at AOBA was talking to banks about deposits, deposits, deposits. They're like, oh, we don't need any deposits. You know, we're flush with deposits, right? We have all of the money that came in during PPP, and you know, we don't even know where how to deploy them. And it's funny, like you had said, Alex, now people are rushing towards it. And it's going to be really interesting. Where are you going to go get deposits? Have you seen any good fintech partnerships being presented so far? I have not, but I haven't seen, oh, you know what? Not true. Mantle? Mm. Um, was co-presenting with Connect One yep. and another bank. And that seemed to be leading to a lot of deposit growth for Connect One. I, I feel like I took a picture of the slide, but I can't remember the numbers going on. But that seemed to be something that was seen as successful from the CEO's point of view. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, Mary, I mean, I do think fintech is a, a vehicle for getting to deposits. And I think there are a couple different models for, for doing that. I think particularly on the commercial or small business side, getting those deposits, which tend to be a little larger, um, is something you could potentially look at going through fintechs. But I think, Jason, to your point, like you can't just spin these things up overnight, like productive fintech partnerships, um, you know, new customer acquisition strategies, new pricing strategies, new retention. Like you can't just spin those up overnight. And I feel like banks were a little too uh, blase about how many deposits they had and weren't, you know, um, planting the next field while still bringing the crop in, so to speak. 
spoken like somebody who lives in Montana, by the way. Um, and what's interesting, <laughs> you can also begin to see, though, this, this bifurcation of the banks themselves. Those who've already been looking over the horizon and have become very adept at their fintech partnerships. In fact, they're very precise in their language. That's one of the things that got me. They don't just say fintech. They're very specific around, oh, we're using a lending tech or a bank tech and things like that, as opposed to there's also the mass market here where it's like they can lead in and whisper. It's like, we're going to do fintech. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think to that point, um, there is definitely an element of, you know, the sort of people who get it and people who don't. And, um, you know, I mean, I think whenever you look across community banking, the ratio of people who get it to not get it, it's not going to be like a super big amount of people who are ahead of the curve on fintech. But the ones who are, you're right, they speak in a different language. I think a lot of them are LPs or participants in associations or in funds that are sort of jointly investing in fintech. Yes. And they, they have almost more of a VC sort of way of looking at the fintech market, breaking it apart and finding where the opportunities are. This is a bit of a sidebar, but one thing, you know, that keeps coming up is on how overdraft fees, they're probably going to have to charge less like the bigger banks are doing, like a ripple effect sort of thing. And so they're wondering, like, how to make more money. But it was cited. And I think this is we both hate this. The tipping model that fintechs do. There was applause for like this idea of a, a tipping model, but for more of a traditional bank. And I was like, this is a terrible idea. This horrible is idea. Do not do this. It's raining, by the way. We are in the desert, raining, wearing winter jackets, but we are drinking by a fire pit. So we're good. Stop. Yeah, we're staying here. <laughs> Everything is turned upside down. Well, in you know that this clamor for the oh my goodness, right now our business model's under pressure, and that realization. It's like uh, hate to be you know chicken little here, but we've been saying this for a while. Overdraft fees have to go away. Yes, they're a fluff fee. Well, it's, it's funny on the overdraft fee because I, I went through and analyzed a bunch of the big bank earnings reports recently. And uh, so this is Q4. Alex, you're a cool kid. I, <laughs> I'm only admitting that to you guys because that's not cool at all. My wife makes fun of me. But um, going blind, looking at earnings reports. And one of the things that did come out of a lot of them was big banks have taken the pain on overdraft, right? Like it was a really bad year. A couple of them talked about the fact that they're still seeing a little runoff in their non-interest uh, income mostly from lack of you know overdraft and NSF fees, but they've almost taken all of their medicine and now that's going to normalize and now they can kind of get back to the business of growing. I think that's going to be a challenge for community banks and credit unions is they haven't taken that pain yet largely, right? I mean, we, we focus so much of our ire on the Wells Fargo's of the world, rightfully, but there is a very long tail of smaller banks that still are very dependent on some of these business models and some yes. of these fees that are not going to stick around like it's inevitable and so like when you choose to take your medicine i think is a really important concept and i mean maybe it's appropriate because we're out in the rain in the desert it is going to start to rain it is going to start to be a little bit darker i think in the next couple of months for banks of all sizes because deposit betas are going up cost of capital you know interest rates aren't going to ease off anytime real soon and you know, there are starting to be some indications that credit quality is being a bit challenged. So it's going to get a little harder, I think. And, you know, having to take your medicine on overdraft fee income reductions on top of that is just going to be that much worse. But Alex, where do you think they're going to make up? Where do you, th where do you think other fees are coming in now? Because clearly they'll charge other things. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that's absolutely right, right? And I think that's why they were sort of cheering the idea of, like, tipping or, you know, a lot of community banks are sort of kicking down the idea of, like, subscription fee where we're going to bundle additional things in around the checking account. Yeah. You know, I think that the challenge for a lot of those models is, you know, consumers don't want to pay more fees unless there is some discrete problem that this service they're paying a subscription fee is going to solve, right? Mm -hmm. And a checking account, apologies to Ron Shevlin, because I know he uh, talks about this, but like bundling in, uh, you know, cell phone insurance into a checking account doesn't really solve a new novel problem that only that institution can solve. And so when we think about subscription fees or new revenue sources in banking, I think you need to look well beyond the sort of realm of traditional banking products and mm -hmm. start to think about like, 
what's a software product you can build for your target customers that solves a new problem? And there can be financial services built into it. It can be payments, it can be banking, it can be lending, but you have to build something new in order to generate new subscription income. You can't just sort of tack on fees for these existing product structures. Right, because people don't want to pay for that. Well, and it comes back to value though, right? Right, like right now when you bundle in you know, the cell phone insurance, well, is there value to me to have that bundled? As opposed to just uh, it's tacked on, like you said, right? As opposed to, you know, where's a value added service that you can do because it somehow makes my life either easier or incrementally, you know, adds more money into my pocket or saves me money opposed to it. Some insurance I can buy from another provider, probably cheaper, isn't going to add value. But now if you can say, hey, you know, allow me to get paid faster, or make it more convenient, or my books are automatically reconciled. You know, is that more convenient or maybe bundle my auto insurance with the over with the, you know, the drafting. But back to this idea of it, it has to have value and just digitizing things doesn't fundamentally add value. Nor like it has to be something different than a competitor. Like the community banks here were also saying maybe they'll try early payday since the big banks are doing it now, too. But like who's going to why why pay for that when you can get it for free? other places i don't know yeah that's i mean that's table stakes right and so i mean the i think uh a trend that you see and maybe when fintech kind of cools off a little bit community banks will sort of get out of this mode but like following behind the big banks and fintech companies is not a strategy for differentiation and Mm -hmm. it's not a strategy for creating value and it's not a strategy for setting yourself up to generate new income streams right and so like To contrast that, I think when you look at some fintech companies, you see them starting to step into the direction of, we're going to build products that aren't banking products, they're banking adjacent products, right? So like Daylight is an example of this, right? They focus on LGBTQ consumers and couples, and what they're building right now is a service that helps with family planning and fertility planning, right? And like things that are huge challenges that are relatively unsolved for that customer segment, there's a financial services component to that, right? There's lending, there's payments, there's insurance, there's all kinds of financial services components to that. But to solve that problem, you have to build a new software product that provides education and provides automated workflows and intelligence for navigating that process. That's a net new product that's being added to the world that addresses an unsolved problem for their customer segment. And so if I'm a community bank, the question I need to be asking myself is, what are the unsolved problems, not financial services problems, but unsolved problems for my customer segment that we might be able to solve? And if you do that, there's always a financial services angle to this, right? Everything touches money. You can always bring it back to your core competency, but you need to solve these new problems if you want to generate new revenue. Who do you think at the bank would be responsible for uncovering these problems to know what to solve for? Well, I mean, one of the challenges there is there isn't someone. Normally, this falls into the realm of product management. And for too many banks, product management equals project management, <laughs> right. right? Less time spent on uncovering needs, thinking about, you know, what can we do that's unique as opposed to following, which, you know, what, this fast follower fallacy is really about how do I slow my glide to irrelevance? doesn't stop it though, right? And you certainly don't thrive. And I think the banks that do it the best are the ones that say, well, wait, as a smaller institution, I actually have a very intimate relationship with a lot of my customers. I understand them in a different way. And also, by the way, the bar is not as high that if I can go solve a problem, it's going to be relevant to my business versus it'd be really hard. Like I'm glad I don't work at a like super regional bank, right? Like you have to do big things well, and they have to be very successful to move the needle. That's really hard. Like doing new things and it working at scale is really hard. Yeah. And I, I'm also, I guess, my new colleague, Ron Chevlin. Yeah, I was, I was just in Ron, but go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say he recently did a report that was shining a little bit of a spotlight on what happens when someone is like a member of two niches. Maybe they're a member of Daylight, but also they identify for something that would they'd want a niche bank account for too. Like, right, or yeah. it's like a profession, like a doctor or something. A doctor right, or yeah. something like that. Um, I don't know. I don't know how I think about that. Do you have a strong view on when people are doubling up on the problems being solved? And Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really good question, and it kind of relates back to community bankers also in that um, I think a lot of times community banks, when you ask them, like, what's the customer segment we serve, they say, oh, well, it's the people in our geographic community, right? And I think the question you have to ask yourself with that is, is the way you're defining and segmenting your customers, 
is that segmentation directly connected to financial needs that they have? Mm -hmm. And it could be, right? Like you see agriculture lending done by community banks where they serve specific communities for agricultural lending where they know that market and they know the needs of those farmers in that community. That is a good legitimate answer, right? But I think a lot of times, you know, I'm from Bozeman, Montana, just saying, well, Alex is from Bozeman, Montana, so we're best positioned to serve him. That's not true, right? I, my needs as a financial services consumer have very little to do with the fact that I live in Bozeman, Montana. Go Bobcats. So, like, that's a, <laughs> that's a challenge that um, I think a lot of community banks need to adjust to. And I think it's something that even that, you know, these neobanks that are focused on these different niches are adapting to is that, you know, the affinity or identity play by itself, if you're not also solving some key financial services or financial services adjacent problem, the, the, the value there is very limited, right? right. I mean, I, I'd like to have a credit card uh, with my alma mater that, you know, gives me points for whatever, but like, that's not a core primary financial services relationship. That's an accessory. Yeah. And another great example I like a lot is stretch because they cater to the formerly incarcerated and they help them find jobs. Like this is where you can work. So you have income that would go into this account. I think that's a very interesting problem to solve for. Well, and I think this is a problem shared by both community banks and fintechs where the affinity group, whether that be geography or some arbitrary, you know, we are the, you know, neobank for people who are left-handed. It's like, well, does that actually change your financial needs? So, I mean, maybe you need better checks, you know, that they don't smear like mine do. And, you know, <laughs> I write left-handed, but it has to be actionable and meaningful, right? That drives either an increase in the lifetime value of the customer or dramatically drops the cost of acquisition. And I think this is a problem that most of financial services are going to find themselves trapped in is they're spending too much time thinking of themselves as the center of money, but money in someone's life is really about being at the edge of money that, you know, I don't wake up and say, I want a mortgage. I wake up and it's like, I'm getting married or I'm moving, I'm having kids, I'm retiring, right? Like there, there's a story that is different than your financial product. But Alex, your point is every financial product kind of finds its way into your life at some point. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And I, I think that I did some research on this a long time ago where we surveyed consumers and we specifically asked uh, not about financial services products, right? So we mm -hmm. specifically went out of our way to describe what banking can do or does in just general terms, the way a consumer who knows nothing about banking would think about it, right? And we asked, what are your financial services needs and how like, you know, associated are they with like what banks do, right? And we sort of left it open, right? So we just let people sort of freeform answer the question however they would. 1% of respondents mentioned a bank when mm -hmm. they talked about what was important for their financial services future. The other 99% talked about other stuff that in their minds and really from the products they have has nothing to do with banks, right? So like to give you one example, one of the ones that came out of that survey that I just can't stop thinking about, and this was several years ago, was um, I need help figuring out how to use debt, Right. And the insight that came from that that I thought was really interesting was it's not I need a loan. Mm -hmm. It's not even I want to buy this thing. So I need a loan for it. It's basically a sense that people who are rich, who are wealthy, have access to debt as a productive tool for like building wealth and getting what they want. And lower income consumers, and this is, I think, a very accurate perception, debt ends up being a trap, not a tool, yes, right? And so this absolutely. sort of like lingering perception that they had was, help me figure out ways to use debt productively and avoid debt when it's not productive to what I want. And when I was thinking about the way they framed it in that, I, I was really struggling to figure out, is there any mass market financial services product that does that? And I couldn't think of any, right? I mean, we're starting to get some fintech products that do like debt repayment or mm -hmm. optimizing debt repayment. That's good. That's kind of in the zone of what we're thinking. You get some stuff that's like PFM, financial services advising, like kind of guiding you towards the best thing. But there's no tool that I can basically use that says, this is where you should use debt. This is a great use of debt. And this is a really bad use of debt. And it was such a simple thing. But ever since I heard that, I'm like, oh my God, there's so much unsolved problem space within financial services because we're so trapped by thinking about products that have always existed rather than thinking about what products should exist. And I really want to underscore this because of the atmosphere, the, the, the sense of an average bank is we don't need to do anything right now because the competition is not there. That is the opposite. Like, yeah. you know, 
no, <laughs> there are so many unsolved problems and they need to be solved. And the right time to solve them is when things are going yes, dicey. You, you know, right now is the right place. I want to give one of my favorite examples, disclosure, we are an investor from the Alloy Alchemist Fund. Yep. We invested in this startup called Upside FI out of Boston. I think I've told you this story, yeah. Alex. It's one of my personal favorites. But what they did is they took traditional debt models and flipped them on their ear and said, what if instead of borrowing uh, from someone else and repaying them, what if you're actually paying yourself back as part of it? Not like the early days of circle lender or self lender. And what they did is they doubled the amortization period. So they do this for student loans. They do it for uh, credit card balance uh, transfers. And when you double the amortization period, but you keep the payment the same, what you actually end up doing is you take that overpayment, if you will, you put it in a retirement account that is actually linked to an access collateral for the underlying loan. So in a very short period of time, you've actually fully collateralized a loan, which allows you to drop the rate. Hmm. And when you drop the rate, you tell the customer, it's like, but do you want to keep the payment the same? Right, because now I can put it on the different part of the balance sheet. Well, guess what? By the time you're done paying off your debt, you've actually made a significant investment in your own retirement. So in their student loan uh, example, like by the time you pay off your student loan, you've saved one to two million dollars for wow. retirement. Right. Like I saw this great quote last week. It says, if you're rich, it's leverage. If you're poor, it's debt. <laughs> That is a great quote. <sighs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly right, right? I mean, it's like we talk all about leverage and seizing financial services opportunities, but so much of that is still dependent on either the individual being savvy about financial services and how to manage wealth or the team of people they can hire to do that, right? And so, like, I, I absolutely despise when we use the term democratization in fintech. I hate it. But well, it's often a lie. Oh, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. right. Or we're democratizing things that should have been kept locked in a box far away from consumers. Yeah. But there is, I think, very much truth to the fact that there are these things that we know can be good or bad mm -hmm. in financial services. And the way to productize those things, the choices we make when we're designing software can either give consumers the benefits of those things or can harm consumers in the way that we make those design choices. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because there's not to the point about like upside uh, as just an example that you gave. There's maybe not a tremendously compelling business model reason day one to do that, right? Like if they're repaying the loan, they're repaying the loan. That's fine. But you're creating, going back to your earlier point, more value for consumers. And you have to think in terms of like every day I'm trying to earn this customer's business and provide as much value as possible. And I, candidly, I think one of the challenges we have in financial services is so much of our revenue is indirect, right? Like, mm -hmm. and, and Jason, I'm not going to like try to set you off too much about like debit interchange, but like the problem with interchange is that you can make money for basically doing nothing. And when you do nothing and you make money, you get used to not earning the customer's business every day. And so like I, I was making fun of sort of subscription fees before, but I actually kind of like subscription fees just in that it keeps you accountable and honest to every day the customer is going to wake up and decide to keep paying this fee or not based on the value I provide. You knew earlier when you brought up overdraft, I was like biting my tongue to say, <laughs> hey, all of you community banks depended on interchange. It's going away. Yeah. It is going away. Like you Prepare for it now. And I'm glad that none of the community bankers can hear me say that because I probably would be run out of here. But, you know, it's friction. And, you know, the natural state of the world is friction gets removed. Somebody will innovate around that. And so that friction is the business opportunity for some other model. And I was telling this to one of uh, our bankers today. I said, if I could be the CEO of Starbucks for the day, I would flip it into a payments business. Why? They have one of the most popular wallets in the world. Forget what the big banks are trying to come together to do. Yeah. I would take my Starbucks QR code that exists in their mobile app and be like, hello, every other retailer that has a QR code reader at point of sale. Welcome to the Starbucks payment network, right? And by the way, I also have a rewards program that everyone likes, boom, yeah. right? And they can do it for so much cheaper. Uh, Jason, you'd slam dunk on QVC. <laughs> <laughs> With that advertisement. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that um, 
that's the kind of like lateral thinking that you have to have when you're doing these things. And, and Starbucks is a great example. I mean, I know we talk about it all the time and it's kind of a played out example in fintech. But I think the thing that's relevant about Starbucks is the discipline to do multiple divergent things well at the same time, right? Because like Starbucks is nowhere if no one wants to go in and get coffee. And right. so they have to run their core business and they have to do it well. But the ability to say, okay, because we have that, because we have people coming in, because we have this engaged customer base, what else can we do with that? And what other businesses can we build on top of that while still making sure that you're not cross-subsidizing or you know, giving yourself an excuse to slack off in any one area? And I think that's such a hard thing to do. And it, it, I, I haven't heard a whole lot of talk at this conference about embedded finance or you know, uh, embedded financial services. Maybe that's something you've heard, Mary. Uh, a little bit. It's come up a little bit, but... What's coming up a lot, which I think is kind of interesting just because of chat, GPT, chatbots. Yeah. These bankers want them. Um, and I'm curious what both of you, because I remember Digit dropping its chatbot because it thought it was not like a great experience. I love that chatbot. I did too. Okay. I did too. Ethan, if you're listening. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Bring it back. Yeah, we love this. <laughs> but I'm curious because like, and then the conversation turned to like, oh, but if you have a chatbot, your customer seriously needs to know this is a robot versus a human because sometimes they have names associated with them and that's a big faux pas but do you think there's a i mean one community banker was saying um there's their number one thing that people are calling them on their 1-800 number is still for or maybe they don't have a 1-800 number being a community bank but whatever <laughs> number they have is what's my account balance yeah i i heard that discussion too this yeah. morning and you know i mean i think that on the chatbot thing this may be a un unpopular take but i i think chat GPT is like the worst thing to happen to community banking in the last couple of years. Ooh. That's my spicy take. And, Very spicy. and the reason <laughs> I think that is community banks in particular, big banks too, but community banks in particular have a real problem when some new tech thing breaks through into mainstream consciousness and suddenly they all latch onto it as like, Oh, well, we're going to do our own chatbot. Not understanding the nuances of how chat GPT works, what the large language models are that they use to train chat GPT, how difficult it is, how like much energy it consumes, like all of these like sort of nuances that go into like, well, would that actually make a good tool for banking? It all sort of gets compressed into a article that you read that's like what chat GPT means for the future of customer service and community banking. And I could write that article and what that article chat would GPT. say, yeah, I could write it in chat GPT. And what that article would say is the very generic answer, which is, well, the advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning mean that community banks will be able to leverage this technology to have closer relationships with its customers. I could write that article. It would get tons of views. It doesn't mean anything. It's meaningless. And so I actually am very concerned about when these things sort of give give bankers almost an easy way out, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, oh, we don't need to have a larger strategy for ad provide value. Going back to what you were saying, Jason, we're just going to do a chatbot. Yeah. The financial world is being shaken to its core. Macroeconomic pressures are rising, disruptors are redefining traditional business models, and innovative technologies and experiences are evolving faster than ever. How can you find your feet on the ground that's constantly shifting. You have to read the Global Innovation Report from our partners at FIS. From embedded finance and ESG to crypto, decentralized finance and the metaverse, FIS pinpoints the trends you need to watch and explains how innovation can give you an advantage in both good times and bad. Discover how the latest innovations could affect your business. Explore the research today by visiting www.fisglobal.com slash global innovation report. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks and invests. Sadly, a number of the conversations that I've been having and I ask what their strategic priorities are, and it all comes back to, and no offense to Mantle, um, digital account opening. It's like, yes, you should have digital account opening. That is not strategic. <laughs> it is necessary, but not strategic in what you do. And, I would say, and I'm the, not casting stones just at you know community bankers here, but also fintechs where it's like, yeah. we either digitize something, 
insert blank AI, insert blank democratize, right? It's like, no, putting a veneer of digital or claiming it's like, oh, we have AI, so we don't have fraud, or, you know, we have AI, so, you know, we can do better lending, you know, as you're fond of saying, the hard part is not lending, the hard part is getting repaid. AI does not solve that in most cases. And I don't think there's enough attention on some of the fundamentals of like, where's the customer going? You know, a, a quick plug here. We host a fintech house at South by Southwest. Every banker and every fintech should go to South by Southwest. It is not a banker, a fintech conference, right. but is the future of experience and expectations. And the things you see there are how the world's going to operate seven to 10 years from now. Yeah, because the conferences are still talking about blockbuster Netflix. I'm like, we got to evolve from this. <laughs> Well, I mean, example that's here. exactly right and I, I think that's such a good point about south by southwest i mean you have to go where the rest of your peers aren't if you want to get ahead right and i think that's i mean i this has been a lovely conference i've really enjoyed going to it i've learned a ton about community oh, banks i have and, learned so much about insurance for example that yeah. i had never known and i'm actually kind of curious yeah, about it now yeah, yeah i mean like the details of like MA strategy like i know a lot more than i did before so it's been great for me but for the bankers that are here that already know the details of all of this thing they kind of need to go everywhere else, like go to South by Southwest, go to, you know, I mean, like go to like the whatever the biggest uh, conference is for the cannabis industry or for healthcare or for whatever these other areas are where there are money adjacent problems. That's where you need to spend your time. You can be the financial services expert at those shows trying to uncover problems and integration opportunities and potential partnerships and what the future of experience looks like. So you're not just talking blockbuster Netflix. Yeah. And I think, you know, another thing that's really come up here is, you know, people searching for talent. And I feel like that's absolutely the move you do when you're in search of talent. Also, another sidebar, the spiciest thing that happened at this conference is when the Connect One CEO went up. Were you at the session? He had an impromptu session talking about how more male bankers needed to show up to the women banker reception go frank oh yes go frank is right that was an incredible moment but then i also heard the ushers were telling men maybe it was a female event so (laughs) the more you know it's important well the women in banking lunch did have better food than the rest of the conference so i can see why they would show up well and also shout out so last week um sunrise banks hosted the first uh, twin cities women in finance which really they defined as banking and fintech in the intersection and i was one of three males there Good maybe for you, because Jessica. becca made me go um, okay but also you wanted to be there to support females. i was there to support her and i said agreed i'd work the door because she had more important things to do um but it was interesting you know talk about getting out of your echo chamber yes to hear the like I almost felt bad that I was privy to these intimate conversations about what it's like to grow up your career within banking that is white male dominated, right? And the expectation that it's like, oh, if you're female, oh, do you manage the tellers? Or, you know, like where that puts you versus, you know, how they think about their trajectory. But I went to like a lot of non-obvious things that if I was in my echo chamber, which I think is you know, very egalitarian as I talk to tech people. I'm good friends with folks like Alex and Mary and Theo and all these others. Right. But it's like, no, 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 that's not the run of the mill experience of Mm -hmm. what it's like to work in a male dominated industry. I think it's really punishing for a lot of women in the traditional banking industry. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I just watching some of the panels and stuff at the conference diversity was the you know white male on stage who was under the age of 50 that was like diverse or like maybe one of them was wearing glasses um i mean that's that's pathetic right we can do so much better and to your point i mean they they have the like luncheon and it's like you know women in finance women in community banking that should be on main stage right and it should be on main stage and not on a saturday um absolutely this is a point from like parents out there i mean how do you get to this conference that's such such a good point right like who's taking care of the kids while all of these other bankers are going to these conferences i mean like there's there's a whole bunch of sort of deeper conversations to be had there but it Mm kind of goes back to what we were talking about before in terms of getting outside of the areas that you're in and like looking deeper. I, I was talking to a, a fintech founder, a woman who um, was creating a fintech company that was focused on uh, providing small business banking services to like people in the service industry. Yeah. And she was pitching it to uh, a, a male VC and um, they were sort of questioning like how uh, big a market that is, or like really if there's like a kind of a problem to be solved there. And 
it was a Zoom call, and she was like, well, look out your window right now. And a uh, person looked out their window and like, yeah, so what do you see out there? Well, um, someone cutting my lawn. I have someone who comes by and cuts my lawn. And they were like, does that person, how do, how do they get paid? Where do they keep their money? Do you know the answers to those questions? Mm-hmm. And they're like, no. But it's like, that's a huge market. And that person and that market was invisible to this person because of their role and their perspective and like the biases that they carry with them. And so I think that's a perfect example of there's all these massive invisible markets hiding in plain sight. And the people who have the decisions to make about what products to build, they don't see them. Oh, absolutely. And this goes to geography, too. Like the Midwest still like does not get enough attention, even though there was a revival a handful of years ago. That's playing into the crowd. Yeah, playing into the crowd. Well, and I want to extend that on the fintech side too, because the number of pitches we see where it is very much an engineer's approach to solving a problem. And it's like, but that's not how your potential customer sees that problem. You're not, you're solving it as an engineer, not as a human. Okay, so I have to rant about that uh, really fast, which is just to say that the other one that you see a lot in fintech that drives me absolutely out of my mind is fintech solutions built for tech CEOs and founders. <laughs> if I see one more of these, I'm going to like lose my mind because it's it's not a massive market. It's not an underserved market. It's only a market that you know well, right? And you see that all the time. You see these solutions where it's like, you know, um, and, and not to pick on 80s fintech companies, I've talked to a bunch of them and they're very nice and I think they're doing a good job, but their core problem statement is it's really hard to be the founder of a tech startup. You know, you don't have as much money in your bank account because a lot of it's tied up in equity. And that means you can't buy your dream house because banks don't understand your unique financial services situation and they won't write you a mortgage for this, you know, $2 million house that you want to buy in the Bay. Like, that is a problem, technically. And that is something you could solve with financial services and software and sort of combining those in a novel way. It is not what we should be doing, right? It's just not. It's not what VCs should be investing in. It's not what we should all be spending our time on. There are other bigger problems, and I think a lot of it comes back, Mary, as you were saying, to sort of putting the right voices on center stage talking about that. Oh, yeah, the right vo- – yeah. Or just, yeah, you need different people. Well, and I'm going to double down on that rant. My second least favorite version of this is around that democratization and the underserved and the underbanked. Yeah. And most of these solutions are not actually really good for the underbanked because a lot of them are like, and we're going to figure out how to give them debt. It's like, no, they do not need debt. The answer to everything is not debt. And it certainly is not financial literacy. Um, I didn't know this, but something I learned here, but I'm wondering if you knew this. Goldman Sachs, Clarity Money, when they acquired them, they went on to Walmart? Oh, the the folks from, yes. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So that that's interesting, right? Because very interesting. a lot of the, and you see this too. I mean, I think Goldman Sachs is actually a really interesting example of mm-hmm. this where like, we're going to democratize what we do. We're going to reach the mass market. We're going to do all these things. Like, not so much, you know. Yeah, and and not. I think that um, the folks that were originally behind uh, Marcus at Goldman Sachs now being at Walmart and sort of driving that neobanking effort that's sort of resurgent at Walmart is a good example of, you know, you have to have the right alignment of the customer segment you're going to serve, the right resources to invest in building good products and building good technology, and the right like right to serve those customers, right? The right distribution channel for mm-hmm. those customers. And, you know, a lot of these things you see, and I think this applies to community banks as well, you know, they'll go, oh, we're going to get into this market, right? Like you see this with banking as a service. We're going to get into banking as a service. And the question that you have to answer before anything else is, what's the right you have to serve early stage fintech startups? How have you earned the right to serve those customers? Do you know the fintech ecosystem? How much time do you spend in the fintech ecosystem? Do you invest in fintech companies? Do you have an understanding of these founders and what they're looking for? Like the right to serve a customer segment isn't just born out of, well, that looks like an underserved customer segment. We're going to go get them. You have to do the legwork to get there. And I I think we skip that stuff a lot of times. Alex, you're like really underscoring the egos out there. (laughs) Like There are so many egos out here and you need one, right? To think you can solve a big problem, but um, it's a little bit out of control. Well, and Alex, I love that. What gives you the right? Okay, you have a bank charter to run your bank as it runs today. That does not give you the right to go be the bank behind. I think this is where a lot of the problems we see coming up is that ego that Mary just talked about. It's like, oh, we're really good at compliance. No, you're good at your kind of compliance, not at the kind of compliance that it takes to be really adept at being an issuing bank for one of these, right? Or, you know, the bank of record for a lender. 
Yeah, when you see the arrogance come out, Mary, you probably saw this in some of the sessions that you watched. I mean, you see it come out in the way they talk about everything, right? Like another one that kind of struck me was uh, remote work came up oh. as a, a topic uh, this morning. And uh, yeah. yeah, it was it was really interesting because they had three bank executives on stage. Uh, they were all roughly between the ages of like 45 and 65, something like that. And uh, they asked them about remote work. And um all three of them not only said we don't allow remote work, but they were so gleefully dismissive and snide about the whole concept of remote work that I was kind of taken aback, right? I mean, they, they shared stories about, yeah, we had someone, a high performer come to us and say, you know, um, I love working here. I love working at this bank, but I'd like to do four days in the office and one day from home because I also do some volunteer work. And they're like, yeah, we fired that person. They're working at a different bank now. And it's like, okay, that's a bad answer, right? Like, that's just not a good thing. It's a bad answer. And it's probably part why they have a talent problem. I mean, it's a little bit ridiculous. And also, like, you know, I'm when I've gone into an office, not my current office, but when I've gone to other offices, it's like, what are they doing? They're reading like the newspaper, which good. I am, you know, but like there's coffee breaks and so on. Like how much, why is this better than anything else? Yeah. Well, and not just to pick on the banks, I'd say there's a similar arrogance when it comes to fintech when it says, oh, but we have technology. Right. We have it figured out. And I think the most interesting and innovative products that come out are ones that are generated by people who have a level of humidity humility that recognize it isn't just solving a problem that i have tech ceo who can't afford a house in the bay area or bank ceo that came up through commercial lending right and so everything is about risk management and being right all the time and therefore you think you're right all the time but it really is that deep understanding and willingness to go try something to do it, it figure out that you're doing it wrong and adapt to what actually is working for people. So you're basically saying you have to be curious, and I can't underscore that enough. Like, you really have to be curious. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, right? And it does apply to both sides, right? I mean, you see tech companies that adopt a model of, we move fast, we ship, we ship fast, we move fast, and then they run into a problem where the problem requires them to take six months or a year of really diligently thinking through a problem and not moving fast and slowing down, and they won't slow down. They won't change their approach to doing something and mm -hmm. be curious, to your point, yeah. in order to solve this new problem, they just plow ahead. And same thing on the community banking side. They have a model. They believe in relationship banking. And to the extent that they've been dragged into better tech, it's because they felt like they were being forced to, not because they were curious. And I, I, I love that you honed in on that, Mary, because like that's the thing that I've noticed at this conference more than anything else is over the last couple of years when you were talking about fintech and how important it was, were you doing it because you were afraid or because you were curious? And I think that it was fear, not fear, curiosity. But also, it's buzzy. So you're following the buzz because you don't want to be like the person not keeping up, right? Or you're looking to reinforce a belief you already have, like the belief yes. it's like, oh, fintech didn't actually disaggregate us. We were the winners. Regulators come after them. You know, treat them the same way you treat us, and we can go back to business as usual. What came out of this conference is there are more credit unions than banks, and I had no idea. Did you guys – is that a thing you knew? Because I did not know this. No, I, I didn't. I mean, I, I think to your point, like one of the things that has blown me away about coming to this conference, I'm really glad I came, is, you know, and this is something I think fintech companies need to appreciate more. Community banking is massive and diverse and interesting. Like there are so many small financial institutions, credit unions, and community banks, and they're they're interesting they're different like jason and i were talking before we hopped on the podcast about just like even the cultural differences between different types of community banks mm -hmm. and where they're based in the country and so you know when we talk about like banking as a service is a great example it's the overlap or intersection between fintech and smaller banks and so i think when you talk to a fintech company they're like oh yeah we understand community banks no you understand the 20 community banks that are really active in fintech and banking as a service there is a massive amount of the iceberg under the surface that you're not seeing and there are opportunities there are partnerships there there are a lot of interesting characters some of which you might get along with and some of which you might not but like it's a way bigger and more complex space than you think. Oh, that's been my biggest takeaway. Absolutely. And, I, you know, it's something I always heard like, oh, the community bank knows the community. But like that, that's true. Like that is a that's an extra tension while you're like, you know, thinking about your next technology project. Like you don't want you like you really care about the in-person things because that is how you're competing. Right. Well, in 
one of the things that's so important is you are in the com community. Yes. And you can't be, you know, let's also face it, JP Morgan's tellers and Bank of America's tellers. Also, by the way, go to your kid's school and also, you know, go to the T-ball games, right? right? So it's not like they're this big faceless thing. But the community bank does mean something. And I was asked on Twitter today, what are some of the red flags for fintechs I, we look at investing in? And for me, one of the biggest ones is the fintechs that think that banking is easy. That oh. somehow it is easy. Like it is a, not only massive, but it is a complex and hard business. That still happens. <laughs> well, and, and and to that point, I mean that's a that's one I struggle with a lot when I talk to fintech companies. That and you know I'll pick on early warning services and their um, wallet that they're building. Totally fine to build a digital wallet, right? Uh, that's that's something that I think people need. But please, 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 and I'm not saying that EWS is doing this, but like I see this in fintech a lot. Please have respect for the fact that many other people have tried and failed to do this, right? Like Mount Everest is littered with dead bodies that have frozen to the mountain and that you're climbing past. Like have some respect for that and the fact that they were also probably pretty good climbers and just as in a good a shape as you are and just as ambitious. Like know what came before you and understand why it worked and why it didn't and what you're going to do is different. And I see that all the time in, in, in community banking and fintech, right? I mean, in community banking, it's banking as a service. Oh, those guys do it. It's easy. Well, those guys do it because they're really good at it. There's a whole bunch of dead bodies that you're not seeing. And it's actually a very hard space. It's not something to just jump into. You can do it, but take the fact seriously that others have done it. This isn't a novel idea. And you know, look at Metabank and Bancorp. They both spent, you know, six, seven years in the penalty box right. as a result of what they pioneered. And then, you know, you, Key, and I had that great talk about, you know, Blue Ridge on everyone misses what's below the waterline for those who do it well and what they've invested in. And let's face it, financial services are hard and complex, right? Because mm -hmm. bankers think about it from a banker's very logical balance sheet mind and risk. Fintechs think about it from their very technological and product driven. And the reality is, and to quote, uh, I had a little background in a foray into a genetic startup. Don't ask about that. Double PhD <laughs> in uh, microbiology was explaining to you know me as a mechanical engineer, a fluidics engineer, he goes, Jason, you have to understand biology is squishy. And I think we miss this when we talk about financial services quite a bit is the human on the other side, whether it is a consumer or a business, especially small business, is squishy. And we try and apply the bank rigor, the tech rigor in our approach to solving problems that doesn't always account for the squishiness of biology. Yeah, I, I, I love that way of thinking about it because, you know, I mean, small business is maybe the best example of this run as far away as you can from any bank or fintech company that says we're going to serve small businesses because uh -oh. that's there that's, was one here <laughs> well so and, and it's fine I, yeah. there's a segment there but like small business is not a segment small business is 20 million different individuals and companies that are doing vastly different things like small business as a segment is not a segment you have to look for sub-segments. You have to demonstrate like an understanding of how they're squishy in different ways, right? And like you can, I'm not saying that everyone is an individual snowflake that needs their own individual solution. There are segments, but you have to respect the fact that like there is a lot of squishiness in all of the different segments you're looking at. And you have to get down to a place where, you know, to sort of, you know, take this analogy as far as it can possibly go. As you start to press on it, it stops feeling squishy and starts feeling a little bit more like, okay, I'm getting the shape of this. I understand what this is. That is really, really important when you're trying to figure out who you're going to serve, because if it's big and it's squishy and you press on, it's like, oh, wow, that happened. That's kind of weird. We didn't expect that. That's where all the problems come from. Well, one of the problems here that keeps coming up is fraud, right? And they're saying fraud from fintechs, which is fair. Sure. Um, but I'm wondering, how does that stop? Well, ish. <laughs> well, and the problem is so much of fraud comes back to squishiness. Right. Right. was talking to a tech provider who's head of compliance, had one of their bank banks that they're a provider for. The wife of the CEO was a victim of spear phishing. Mm. And they're like, oh, but your technology didn't stop it. It's like, our technology can't stop you giving someone your username and password. Like, you know, th that is a squishy problem that technology is hard-pressed to solve. And I think that'll be an entirely other episode. So as we start to wrap up, where are you headed next, Mary? What's the next conference you'll be at? I think 
I'm not 100%, but I'm 95% sure it's FinTech Meetup. Hey, me too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the last thing, what are you both reading right now? Ooh, I'm going to get the title wrong. So Alex, go. Alex first. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go first. Um, there's a, a book I'm reading. Uh, it's actually a reread, but I love it so much that I reread it every like 18 months or so. And it's called Range by David Epstein. Have you read this one? I'm 18% of the way through. Oh my God. I, I love this book so much. Range by David Epstein is, is absolutely spectacular. And it, it speaks, I think, to what we've been talking about today, which is Mary's digging in her backpack for her I book, did. by the way. Um, <laughs> just for those who can't see. Um, it speaks to the the value of being able to cross disciplines, as we were talking about before. So, like, the value of a banker going to South by Southwest is that you are broadening the range of problems you can look at. And I cannot recommend this book enough. Well, just so you know, that sparked a major marital battle in the opening example on kids special. Jess and I were both college athletes in the should you be specialized or generalized as an athlete? Yes. Yeah. She's like, no, nah, they're specialized. <laughs> And uh, I'm reading something in a very different direction called The Boys of My Youth by Joanne Beard. Ooh. And I was attracted to it because I started writing an essay about a friendship enduring more than like a lot of the men I've dated over the years. <laughs> and these are essays all about like her more substantial relationships other than the men in her life. And they're ha it's haunting. Some of these essays are haunting, but it's beautiful. I have to say just for listeners... I, a while ago, I put together like a fintech reading list with different suggestions for people to read stuff. So I was taking a little time off from my newsletter. Mary gives the absolute best <laughs> book recommendations ever. They are the greatest, most specific, most hilarious, compelling recommendations. So if you ever need a book to read, contact Mary. She gives awesome recommendations. I'll take that plug. <laughs> and there was a reason I asked this question. I think it's going to be one of my new standards. And for me, this was a recommendation. So last week or two weeks ago, we took time off, took the kids to the Gulf Shores. I hadn't taken any time off over the holidays. I'm like, you know what? I'm not even taking a computer, and I'm going to read a book. I ended up reading three books, but one of the rec – I'd ask for fiction books because I always consider that guilty pleasure. Yeah. Well, you and should. It. Do it's it. amazing. And so. um, but <laughs> consider what, it change your life. <laughs> well, and it did actually spark a lot of creativity back, but one of the nonfictions that was recommended – I'm only about halfway through – is called The Earned Life. Mm, and it's, what's interesting about it, and I think it does have applicability to a lot of what we talked about in problem solving, is the value we place on things when we feel like we've earned them, that it's an investment versus a gift or something that just falls into your lap. Oh, I love that. And I think it's going to be one of those books that I read and immediately go back and start reading over again because it's going to take two or three times chewing it before I can fully digest it. But The Earned Life is right up there for me. Well, it has stopped raining. The fire pit has gotten hot and we're all out of drinks. So that's a wrap for AOBA this year, 2023. And thank you, Mary and Alex, for being on Breaking Banks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carla Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media, or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.